Welcome back to The Flip Side. Galen Clavio here, joined by Brian Moritz. We have changed locations once again, or at least I have. I'm at my office, I think for the first time ever in podcast history, and Brian is once again backed up by the funky-looking plates. Uh, so right. uh, welcome back to the kitchen, Brian. Uh, dining room, actually. The kitchen oh, is behind me. Yeah. No, it's, no, it's fine. It's you know, long-time, listen, long-time watchers of this, and by long time, I mean since, what, June, since we started actually doing uh, a broadcast. And we'll note that on the, when we record in the daytime, I'm actually able to be up in the upstairs portion of my house, so dining room with the plates with the animals dressed in winter clothing. When it's at night and there are other people in my house who might be disturbed by, by, by my ramblings, I, I'm, in the, I'm either in the laundry room or in the basement office. So it, it does all depend on, on time of day. But it's good. It's nice to be up here. It's finally feeling like fall. It's less summery. So, um, so we got that going for us, which is nice. It is nice. I mean, it's... Uh... Yeah, fall. It's actually not nice. It's terrible. I hate it. And uh, you know, like the uh, the fall hit us full in the face yesterday, uh, and it's actually continued on today. It's just yesterday was just raining and dreary. Today it's just dreary. Uh, there's, a, okay. there's a there's a wind, and the temperature's about forty four degrees outside. And I just I was I was so affected by seasonal affective disorder yesterday that I fell asleep at like eight forty five at night. Uh, like and, and just slept straight through. Like it was, <laughs> I just couldn't. I couldn't deal with it. I mean, I mean, I mean, we've been over the fact about how wrong you are about fall, and you can just sit there in your wrongness and be wrong about this. I'm more interested in is that a is that a rooster on the basket sitting on the basketball on your shirt? Uh, it's not a rooster. It's a cockerel. Uh, it is actually the logo <laughs> of, uh, of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. Oh, okay. That's a yes. soccer team, right? That's a, it okay. is. Yes. Okay. Yes. A soccer team that just beat Liverpool 4-1. Uh, oh, that's a nice one for them. Very, very nice yeah. one indeed, yes. I, that, it's a, sorry, that's a title. It's a cockerel. It um, is a cockerel. I mean, it, uh, I don't know. So, so I, 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 have not, I have not been closely following uh, uh, the Premier League. How is Everton doing this year? Did they still stink? They actually just sacked their manager like two days nice. ago. Nice. All yes. right. Yes. All right. They are, uh, they are, I think, only – they might actually be in the relegation zone right now. If they're not in it, they're only outside of it on goal differential, uh, okay. which, is, which is a bad place to be, frankly, if you're Everton Football Club. Uh, so, mu- so, mu- so much like American football, I picked well in, pick- in, 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 yeah. in picking the, the horse. You really, you really didn't do a good job there at all. Um, but you know, they—they're actually—they actually are in the relegation zone now. They are—they are eighteenth they are out of twenty teams, and they—they uh, they fired their manager. And this was after a summer spending spree that many thought might vault them into like top six, top seven contention. Oh, so we got—we got an epic collapse happening here. That's 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 interesting. Yes. So yes. sorry about that, dude. Man, well, you know, my, my, tried to tell you, but no. <laughs> See, adopting a team is always so weird because, like, you have to just kind of like, like, I don't know why I picked Everton. I think I played them on a video game one or a few yeah. t- a few times, and like, they're one I recognize. So, like, okay, I can follow Everton. That's the closest thing to an emotional connection that I have on this, and I can't like, you know, pick Manchester United or something like that because that's yeah. like being a Yankee fan. Right. Um, so, um, but, but interesting stuff going on in our professional, in our professional and personal worlds. I spent the weekend in Philadelphia at a museum of medical oddities, which was mm. awesome. There's a, uh, it was my wife's birthday and our anniversary. And we went, she went, all she wanted to do was visit the, uh, it's called the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia. It's at the College of 
Philadelphia College of Physicians. It's one of the oldest physician societies in the U.S. And it's this doctor from the 1800s, Dr. Thomas Muter, who was very well, well-known surgeon, well-known, uh, uh, well-known physician at the time, very groundbreaking in a lot of his stuff. And he collected and treated like medical oddities, like burn victims and cleft palates and he just and he collected you know strange basically medical weird stuff and he he after he died he left the the college money and his collection and and it's grown since then so we went we spent an awesome day walking around the museum there's a wax mold of a woman a french woman who had a horn growing out of her head hmm. um there was a woman uh, that she's called the soap lady it's her actual body and like the the process, instead of decaying like normal, she basically turned into a soap like substance. Um, there's a forty pound colon. It was really cool. Um, yeah, it was. Um, and my wife had a blast. It was a great time. We had a great weekend in Philadelphia, walking around the, the historic district in Rittenhouse Square. And now you seem. Did you look up the forty pound colon? I, I'm not going to look that up. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. No, you don't. And that, that's not, that's not something you want on your browser history, especially on the work computer. That, could, that, 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 that could get you in a lot of trouble. Um, but, 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 but enough about my colon trip. Um, we can, I, I did want to bring up something that you posted on Facebook yesterday. Yes. Um, and this is about the, I think this is going to be one of our most important topics. We can probably talk about the athletic and everything that happened with that and the Twitter outrage machine that happened yesterday. But, um, so there's a secret. I I I I'm come to learn breaking news that I learned last night uh, from you that there is a secret menu at Red Lobster. Yes, uh, it's it's something. Okay, so let me give you the backstory on this. So I'm I've been on this kind of keto friendly diet where I've been uh, trying to cut down on carbs and and eat primarily meat and seafood and things like that and cheese. And so I joked with my wife about, I think, a year earlier that, you know, this meant that if we had to go to Red Lobster, we could only, and we don't normally go to Red Lobster. I think we've been once in two years, but that we could only go when Ultimate Shrimp was back because then you could just get like loads and loads of shrimp. Um, So Ultimate Shrimp is back for those who aren't aware. It's, It's at Red Lobster right now. And so I was Googling it to see if I could find out when it began and when it ended because I didn't want to show up at the restaurant and have them say, oh, no, sorry, Ultimate Shrimp is gone. And what I found when I Googled was that there was a secret menu with five different types of shrimp that you could ask for that aren't on the list of items that you see that on the menu. aren't on the actual menu. Okay. Right. And so I was like, all right, well, this is interesting. This will be an interesting test of whether these secret menus actually exist because we've seen them in other places. You know, I mean, In-N-Out famously has a secret menu and, um, you know, there's several other places. I get, I think Chick-fil-A have, may have a secret menu. I think so, yeah. Um, but I was thinking, well, certainly the Red Lobster on College Mall Road in Bloomington, Indiana, probably won't actually have the secret menu because right. we're, you know, in the middle of the country here and... Uh, so anyway, I, I went in and I got, you know, like two or three orders of, of the stuff that was on the menu. And I look at the waitress finally as she comes by and says, you want anything else? I'm like, all right, I got to know, does this secret menu exist? And sure <laughs> enough, she rattled off like four of the five varietals that I had read about online. Nice. So I ended up getting the grilled shrimp skewers, which were very good. Might have might have been the best of the grilled ones that I had. And then they also had these coconut shrimp bites, okay. which... 
man, those were incredible. Like I would go back and just order those over and over again. They were, they were, they were a combination of sweet and shrimp and coconut and a little bit of spiciness from this, this, this dip that they brought with it. And so, yeah, I just was, and so I thought it was an interesting thing, but I didn't think it was as interesting as the people on my Facebook feed found it to be. They were like, how did you find out about this? And, you know, it was a very, it was very interesting watching the reaction to it. Um, yeah. So I get, you know, it's amazing what, what Googling the restaurant that you're going to will do for you before you go to right? it. But uh, yeah, man, I mean, Ultimate Shrimp apparently has a secret menu. Who knew? So that, that this raises a lot of questions, um, which is why I think I'm so interested in it. I mean, mainly this idea of why do they have a secret menu? Like why, like these coconut shrimp bites, which are presumably like, pre-made like most other stuff at a red lobster stuff is right. You know, they don't have like shrimp bites that they're hand breading in coconut and doing the thing and making them when you do that. So I, I'm, I'm curious. I don't know if you found this in your Googling and your extensive research on this, but why is there a secret? Me- why not just have coconut shrimp bites on the menu? Why not have the, the, like the potato chip crusted shrimp on the menu? Why, what, why a secret menu? Why not just have this all in the sunlight for all of us to enjoy? I honestly don't know. The, 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 the thing I, I've thought about this a little bit, like why would they do that? I think perhaps it's because they want to push certain flavors mm-hmm. because they, and it might be a cost thing or it might be a, I don't know. It, it, it's, it, so it might just be that, hey, we're going to select these five. These are going to be the main ones. But it also might be a weird sort of like wink and nudge to the diehard lob- red lobster f- fans out there, the people that go regularly and also use the internet, which those are generally Venn diagrams, very little <laughs> overlap because I don't know if you've ever been to a red lobster, folks. But uh, it's it's about the only restaurant that makes Olive Garden's crowd look very young, like by comparison, it's right? A very old group of people in there, and so it might just be a little pat on the back to the people who have searched Red Lobster. And it makes Red Lobster a little bit fun because, man, there were some fun options on that secret menu, not just the ones that we mentioned, but there was like a red shrimp, which okay. tastes a little more lobster like. There was a there was a, a potato chip encrusted chip or a shrimp that I didn't try because they didn't have it at my location. But it's, it sounded quite interesting. Um, I don't know, man. Why do any of these restaurants have secret menus? I mean, I think it's a larger existential question about why, yeah. why a restaurant would have items that you wouldn't have readily available for anybody and wouldn't tell them about. I mean, unless it's right. a, unless you're trying to create some kind of a secret club, which I, I wouldn't discount as a possibility, it does seem a little bit counterproductive. Right. So I like, do you know the what the in and out secret menu is? I can Google it, but I figure like in and out, I can't type today's in and out secret menu. Like the double, secret. double animal style is not on any menu. It's just something that you know oh, about. I just would. Okay. In and out secret menu ranked. Oh, there's a ranking from Thrillist. Though these are always good. Um, yes. so let's see. Yeah. Um, this is like the French fry, that, that French fry abomination from last season. Um, oh, it's one of those where they have pictures and ads on everything. God bless. I mean, the Panera has a secret menu. Taco Bell yes. has a secret menu. John really has a secret menu. Um, no, no, no. So what's weird about it is like, so is it an actual secret menu? Is it just like you can get your burger blank and it's not noted? Like you don't, it's not on the menu, but you can like, Okay, so here's I I think to Quora, of course, is where we turn for all of life's answers. Right, uh, but uh, there was one uh, 
a former restaurateur answered this question about why do restaurants have secret menus? And her okay. responses were as follows. Okay. One reason is the menu gets too big to handle. If it's not on the menu, a busy restaurant can say no, not right now. Mm. But when they have time, they can make special requests for customers. Mm. Another reason is because of calorie counts. Anything that's on the menu has mm. to be, uh, in many states, has to be accounted for in terms of the number of calories. Right. So if you've got... You know, like in like the double, like the double double animal style. You don't want to know the calories for that. You just you don't need to know that. That's just. Right. I mean, you you do in a health way, but if you're ordering that, you don't need to know that. You just want to. Right. You, you, that yeah. I get I get what you're saying there. So I think I, I really th- you know, and it's like Chipotle didn't so, doesn't technically have nachos on the menu. Okay. Because they don't want people going in and asking for chips dumped in a bowl and then, you know, with, with queso or queso whatever. On. Okay. But you can ask for it and you can go, you can get it because it's a secret menu item. So I think it, it's, to some degree, it's those things that I just described. And it's also a way to reward customers with brains and with the desire to ask for things that you, you know, rather than just go off of whatever you, you're being told is on the menu. Gotcha. So, and looking at it, it, looks like almost every restaurant has some sort of one. I was because one of my great hypotheticals was going to be, what restaurant would you love to see have a secret menu? Um, but it seems like they looking like most of them kind of do, which is kind of kind of disappointing. Is there any restaurant you can think of that you would look, or you think could potentially mm. have the best secret menu? Uh, you know, no. I mean, like of the, are we talking about the chains here? Yeah, for for simplicity's sake, yeah, like not, uh, um, you know, uh, your favorite Chinese place in Bloomington or my favorite right, no, taco right. pla- place in, right. in Fairport that will, like makes something special, but like a general general availability, yeah. Gosh, um, I would say probably as I think about this, um, and I don't, I, you know, I'm I'm actually not 100 percent certain. Um, okay, I. I I, you caught me by surprise with this question because I think the best the best potential secret menu is probably Taco Bell just because yeah. there is so much stuff in the Taco Bell like the in the umbrella of Taco Bell right you've got beef you've got chicken you've got seafood you've got different types of cheeses you've got chips you've got soft tortillas and hard tortillas and you've got a steamer and you've got like I mean I don't know if you saw this there was a story the other day that there. Uh, I think in Milwaukee, there's a restaurant that is advertising a Kit Kat quesadilla. I saw that. I yeah. just saw that today, um, which, which is which has got to be a weird flavor, a, a weird texture thing, because it, it'd be that that the crunch inside. No, like you got to think like a I don't know, like a Snickers bar quesadilla would be much much more along lines there. Like the Kit Kat's just going to be awkward to eat as a quesadilla. I think perhaps, although they're they're also offering one with with a Twix bar. Hmm. So that could potentially work. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I mean, really most of these restaurants are just doing like basically what our college students do and like saying, Hey, I've got Kit Kats and I've got taco shells. Right. I've got a meal. Bam. We've all done that. Yeah. Um, but no, the secret menu is, it's interesting. And, um, we don't go to red lobster very often because my wife doesn't like seafood and neither does my daughter. Um, so that basically red lobster is right out. I mean, you're, yeah, that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough hurdle. That's a tough sell when, when they don't like, when they don't like food from the sea to go to a, a seafood place. Um, yeah. but it's disappointing because the endless shrimp, it would be, that sound, they all sound delicious and shrimp is delicious. So, 
So anyway, we, we might end up going back. I hear it's got like oh. a, couple, a couple of days left or a couple nice. of weeks left. So you might, you know what? Do you have friends? Can't you go with them? Oh, you think I have friends. That's the nicest thing anybody said on this podcast. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, and I was surprised to see you at Red Lobster, too, just because knowing the kind of foodie you are and the kind of, you know, um, generally the type of food you eat, seeing you at a Red Lobster on the on Prima Fossa was a little, a well, little interesting. I let me say. put it, let me, I, I, I knew that I was going to take some, uh, some. No, questions. no, no judgment for me. Uh, but no, 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 just, no, there's a little judgment there. I can <laughs> Um, the way I look at it is I don't go to Red Lobster normally because I can probably do the seafood thing pretty well on my own. I can't have unlimited shrimp on my own. That's a good point. And so, and the shrimp isn't bad. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's like, how do you quantify the the quality or not quantify? How do you, how do you qualify the, uh, you know, the, the goodness of shrimp? I mean, it has to taste decent. And I think all the shrimp there does. And I mean, they're not huge, which may actually be a positive. And right. you know, the I don't notice a tremendous difference in the quality of shrimp I would get there from, say, the quality of shrimp I would buy at the store. So yeah. I don't. Shrimp is, yeah, and it's, and shrimp and it's not of- expensive. I mean, you got you got unlimited to, to you know any type of shrimp you wanted, unlimited, and there were multiple different types you could choose from, and you could change every time, and you get a side. For seventeen dollars and ninety nine cents, I mean, I'm all for being a foodie, but I mean, where are you going to? I mean, put, go order shrimp somewhere else. You get like five little shrimp, and you're paying at least twenty dollars generally. Right, and shrimp is generally, I want to say, it's hard to mess up. But if you know how to cook shrimp, right? I mean, shrimp is shrimp, basically. You know, you get different seasonings on it, and then you know, but in general, unless you're bo- unless you live on the ocean, right, and are able to buy the shrimp from the guy that took it out of the ocean, right. uh, you're probably not going to have... A, I mean, what's the difference between the frozen and then unfrozen shrimp that you would eat at Red Lobster and the frozen and then unfrozen shrimp that you would eat at the restaurant down the street? There's not a great deal. I mean, if you live right. in the middle part of America, like that's the one food you can probably give up on some kind of haute cuisine idea about. Right, right. We're, and, and where I am is just close enough to the, to the eastern sea that sometimes we can get you know fresher seafood than uh, certainly kind of fresher than you can get. In, in Indiana, but still, yeah. If you're not, if you're not, you know, in San, in San Diego, shut, getting the oysters and, and deheading them yourselves, um, yeah, you're pretty much set. So, um, I know you've got you've got a class to teach, so we got to keep this kind of relatively tight. Um, but I think we should probably mention the uh, the internet outrage machine topic of yesterday, which I missed because I was in my own classes yesterday, so I missed. Uh, I saw the article, I read the article, but I missed the kerfuffle. Um, there was a lot was, of kerfluffle. There was, you know what? And it's probably, it, it was so delightfully old school to kind of like be able to read the article and absence the the internet outrage machine. So the article we're talking about is from the New York Times yesterday by Kevin Draper, form, formerly of Deadspin. Um, he wrote an article where he, about The Athletic. And we've talked about The Athletic before on this podcast. We're actually doing a research study about The Athletic, um, which is one of the reasons why I haven't actually written much about you know, both this article specifically and the site in general. But um, so the article was, was uh, like the New York times taking take on the athletic and everything it, and it's big growth in the past summer. And one of the co-founders of the athletic had some very, uh, very strong words about pointed, um, pointed commentary, very pointed commentary about uh, their plans and basically wanting to 
put all daily sports sections out of business at newspapers and replace the sports section with the athletic. Um, so like I said, I missed the kerfuffle. So I, I can kind of guess, but how fill me in on some of the, hi- the, the kerfuffle highlights. I mean, it was about what you would have expected. There was actually, uh, let me call up the awful announcing story because they did a good job of kind of collating most of the the, the highly outraged elements uh, of this. So basically, you know, you had these comments, and I'll just quote from the piece here. Okay. Um, so this was this was from this piece that was written. Uh, I forget the, who's the journalist. Um, uh, goodness. I I can't find the journalist's name right now. We'll get to it before the end of things here. By the time you finish reading this article, the Upstart Sports News outlet called The Athletic probably will have hired another well-known sports writer from your local newspaper. In a couple of years, once The Athletic has completed its breakneck expansion, perhaps that newspaper sports section will no longer exist. Quote, we will wait every local paper out and let them continuously bleed until we are the last one standing. Alex Mather, a co-founder of The Athletic, said in an interview in San Francisco, we will suck them dry of their best talent at every moment. We will make business extremely difficult for them. Um, there was another uh, qu- quote a little later on in the piece. In a city like Chicago, there are 100,000 diehard fans, Mather said. That is a very lucrative subscription business. There are over 100,000 diehard fans of Chicago teams outside of Chicago, he added, and he says they aren't served well. Bleacher Report is empty calories. SB Nation is empty calories. The newspapers are doing nothing. Um, now, so hmm. the, some of the responses from, from some people, uh, you know, you had um, – you know, hmm, I, this was from Barry Sfaluga, who uh, is, I think, writes for DC Sports Blog or something like okay. that. But, hmm, I subscribe to a humble startup that I was rooting for. Perhaps before being poached, I'll cancel my subscription. Um, you know, Barry Pecheski from, I think he's still with That's it, yeah. The tech bros running the athletics should just shut up, huh? Hmm. Uh, Keith Law, why? You think rooting for hundreds of people to lose their livelihoods is a bad look? Um <laughs> That was in response to Barry's uh, tweet, apparently. I'm looking at the same thing you are. So Right, yeah. So um, you got a lot of those sorts of comments. Um, one person, Kate Feldman, said, this is the part you're not supposed to say out loud. Um, and I think that might be the key to the whole thing. <laughs> that, right. Um, you know, I, look, no one, no one likes to see the people gra- dancing on graves, particularly graves that haven't been buried with a body in them yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I think that I think there's certainly a reality of the the newspaper business that has, you know, maybe not gotten the attention that it should have over the course of, the, of maybe the last 10, 15 years, which is how bad the business model has been, how bad the companies that own newspapers generally are to the people that work for them. And that's not, we're not just talking about the little companies, we're talking about the big companies, right? Uh, especially Gannett and the Tribune Company and so forth. I mean, they've they've really taken a business and a, and a profession of sports journalism, and they have absolutely marginalized it and they have driven a lot of people out of the business they have driven a lot of people to different parts of the business that don't have necessarily anything to do with sports newspapers and so you have that environment you have that reality but then you have quotes like this that the guy later had to come out and apologize for because you started getting mostly mostly sports journalists but you had some fans basically coming out and saying well i canceled my subscription because this guy's an asshole Mm -hmm. um this guy has to come out and apologize for that um it was a bad look. I mean, it's 
I, I think that you know the whatever sentiment he was trying to get across, and I'm not here to make excuses for the guy. Whatever sentiment he was trying to get across did not come across at all. And what instead came across was basically, hey, we're going to put a bunch of people out of business, right. which I think, you know, the the clarified comments he made were, were a little bit better, but still they kind of, they they opened up a wound that a lot of people in the newspaper business or in the writing business don't want to see opened, which is this idea that everybody's vulnerable job-wise. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so from my perspective, I understood the outrage and the guy shouldn't have said what he said. I would like to see more consistent outrage from those same people towards the companies that have so totally mismanaged the business of sports writing and newspapers Um, because, you know, there's an easy public face to go after with this guy from the athletic. Most of the faces that you would have to go after in the newspaper business are soulless and faceless and corporate and end up being kind of able to hide behind, you know, the the restructurings and the pivots and the layoffs that we've seen over the course of the last decade. That was my take on it. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, a, a couple things. One, I think you're right. And, you know, it, 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 and I will say it's hard for somebody who's working for a newspaper to come out and blast corporate ownership of newspapers. Um, you know, you're not going to blast your own bosses, you know, something like that. So there, there you know, you'd like to see a little more critique of, excuse me, the newspaper business. And Angel Rodriguez, who's a sports editor at the LA Times, had a great thread on Twitter this morning, basically, you know, thinking about the athletic thing and basically admitting like, yeah, he has a point. Newspaper, web, uh, newspapers have done a disservice to sports journalism. The the web product is terrible for reasons we've talked about on here. Pop-up ads, annoying advertising, lack of content, early deadlines, gutting of copy desks, all this stuff. Has diminished our pro- has diminished our product, and it's important to know that. Um, I think you know. I come back. I keep coming back to the with the athletic that these are Silicon Valley guys. These are this is a tech kind of a tech investor model that's happening with this company. Um, and you know, I I I I, I don't I, I follow a little bit of the tech world, just a, a very little bit. But I know that this is very much the model. You rely on and, and the athletic for all its talk of being advertising free and subscription model, it's running on venture capital. It's getting investor capital. In fact, the the expansion in July came right around, they got like $50 million and they got a huge second round of VC funding. And in the tech world, what happens is you, 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 you get investment based on future growth. Nobody's investing in this, that it's going to hold steady in a few cities and do some great work and really invigorate sports journalism and tell great stories. No, this is about getting more and more subscriptions. This is about growing so big. This is about your investing based on the the promise of probably like 10x growth. I think I said that to you in, an, in a message yesterday or like 100x growth or something like that. And so this is the, you know, the, the kind of out of that that playbook of make a big claim. We're going to come. We're coming for you, newspapers. We're going to destroy you. We're going to revitalize the paradigm and get a lot of money. And you do wonder, I think I saw this on a on the Deadspin piece about this yesterday, but the question becomes with a lot of these companies, and this is in the tech world, you raise money, you raise money until you get bought by Facebook or until you get bought by Google. And then the company's done, the owners cash out and they make, and, and, and they make big money. And, and whatever. And you wonder if that's going to happen here. And, you know, I've, I've been I've talked about the athletic with a lot of people this summer. People are really, especially in sports journalism, they're really interested in kind of the future of it. And like in one way, I hope it works because, you know, giving writers 
more writers, more options is good. Giving fans more choice is good, but it just, it's feeling like, like, like a tech boom situation here. And I don't know how long-term sustain, what, what I don't know what the long-term sustainability is. The other point I thought uh, that came to me today when I was thinking about this was and talk about putting sports journal, the sports pages out of business, right? And we're going to suck them dry and do that. So is there going to be an athletic in Olean, New York? No, probably not, right? You know, they have St. Bonaventure. They're not going to have a site in for for three months of, of St. Bonaventure coverage, and that's it. Okay, so they're going to come to Rochester? Maybe, maybe not. They're going to come to Buffalo. a pretty big city. Well, pretty big, but there's no – but we don't have our own – we have minor league teams here. We, we you know, our, our two biggest sports in this market are the Bills and Syracuse basketball. So we're kind of in the more very regional thing. And so it, it's just, and, and I see this a lot and you see this sometimes on the news side, but you definitely see it in the sports side where when we talk about what's happening in sports journalism and we only think about sports journalism from the professional aspect or the major markets and the pro sports and like major college sports. And we don't think about, Hey, there is a, that there is a whole area of sports journalism that doesn't deal with, doesn't deal with uh, pro sports. It deals with prep sports, high school sports, youth sports, you know, lower level college sports. And it's not as prestigious. It's not as big time. It doesn't make the the revenue as it, but I, but I just found it interesting that like, so all these talk about what the athletics going to do for sports journalism. Well, not completely. It's going to deal with something at the highest level maybe, but like even I, I I've heard, that they're not interested in coming to a city like Buffalo because there's no baseball and they want, they, they're going to, they're focusing on markets for baseball. So basically they have something for, to fill in the summer months. And so, you know, when it comes to, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to see that. And it's interesting to see this, you know, the athletic kind of go from this plucky new thing where it was in three cities to this behemoth that's kind of cocky about, about its stature and, in it. And look, I don't think ambition is bad. You know, I don't think that, you know, wanting to put your competitors necessarily out of business is a bad thing. I think it's a very media thing and a, a 21st century media and journalism thing that kind of like we're all in this together mode as opposed to, no, I want to destroy them. I want to beat them. You know, this kind of goes back to the old you know, two newspaper town or multiple newspaper town model back before JOAs where it was, no, we want to put you, we want to humiliate you and we're going to openly humiliate you and put you out of business. And I think that, you know, there's some energy to that, but the, the, the scales on this are weirdly off in a weird way. Well, yeah, I mean, I look at that. The, the first thing I thought of was the old, you know, multi-newspaper towns and how this sort of talk at the corporate level used to happen all the time and no one really paid attention to it because there was no portal. The New York Times wasn't interviewing the the, the head of the biggest newspaper in um, Indianapolis right. talking about how they wanted to put the leader of the second biggest newspaper in Indianapolis out of business. Um, so, but I, but, you know, your comment on this, on, I guess, local sports journalism is an interesting one because I think to some degree, this sort of a thing that the athletics trying to put together, I mean, it's, it's based upon this idea that the, the sports journalism that can be monetized is the national uh, because ultimately Mm -hmm. while you're right, while there's a tremendous amount of prep based sports journalism uh, that happens across the country, it's really, it's almost not, I'm going to be very careful about how I say this. 
it's almost in it's almost in a different category of sports journalism because it's almost community journalism that happens to focus on sports. No, you're right. Yeah. And so um, I get what you're saying. And I'm not by no means am I denigrating people who are, are, are doing prep coverage, but in the in the conceptualization of someone who's looking at sports journalism as a commodity, as something that can be marketed across state boundaries, across regional boundaries, uh, you know, and, and drive subscriptions, you're going to be looking at, you know, very little of what you're going to be looking at is going to be prep based. If it is prep based, it's like recruiting coverage, which has been subscription model based now for a decade and a half, right. uh, you know, where you've got people going in and watching, but they're not even watching high schoolers necessarily. They may watch some high school games, but they're mostly watching, you know, in basketball, they're watching AAU games or they're watching, you know, traveling team games and soccer, things like that. Mm-hmm. It's a very different sort of landscape. And so when I hear this guy talk, what I, what I interpreted was he was talking about the, you know, the Chicago Tribune sports section. And he was talking right. about the St. Louis Post-Dispatch sports section. He wasn't talking about necessarily the Olean newspaper sports section, which mm-hmm. I think it's easy for people to jump on the, you know, kind of the, the Three Musketeers bandwagon and be like, well, you're talking about all of sports journalism. I just don't even think that I would be surprised if that had even been in the guy's mind because no. I don't, that's simply not monetizable. No, and, level and of journalism. And, and, no, and my and one of the things I found in doing my dissertation is that like there is and I, I, I this is an area of research I should probably do more in because I found it interesting. There's a the real split in sports journalism is between prep co- the, the prep coverage, community coverage, high school coverage, and high school and co- elite college and pro level. Like they're they're very different professions and very different mindsets. And that's not to say one is right and one is wrong or one is authentic and one is bad, but they are, that's like when you, when you talk to, to reporters, like that's the split, like that's absolutely the, the, the kind of one of the lines of demarcation within the profession. So I don't know, it's gonna be interesting to see, you know, generally what reaction is to the athletic. I'm interested to see what our study finds out in terms of content that they're doing. I'm interested yeah. to see what um, kind of where people land in a year from now, like if they bought a year subscription or something like that. So next year at this time, are they renewing it? I, I that's well, I really think I think for the average sports fan, the kerfluffle that happened on Twitter isn't going to matter that much. And the, the quotes in the New York Times aren't going to matter that much. I think sports journalists understandably were upset, uh, you know, because the language was bad, but I think more to the point, and I think this is the case in almost any industry. It's not just something limited to sports journalism. Nobody likes their job being talked about like a commodity. Right. And that's ultimately, I think the, the cardinal sin that the guy committed other than just being a douche. Uh, you know, I mean like that, it, <laughs> that, that was, that was kind of the, the, the big no, no there. But I just think, I think in terms of the people, it's a drop in the bucket of people who will be so offended by this that they won't want to take part in reading the coverage anymore, as long as the coverage is good. And I think that that's ultimately what's going to decide things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not that cheap to buy a year's subscription. It's $48 for 12 months right now. And you get, and you get access to every site now right. on the athletic. Right. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, and I, and I do think there's an appetite for written coverage that isn't, you know, handcuffed to video coverage like you see on ESPN.com or, or some other places. And I, so right. we'll see. I mean, everybody's talking about how writing's dead, and I've always countered with no writing's not dead, but the business model that the people who publish writing is dead. Mm-hmm. So this will be an interesting study because it is a different business model entirely. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, 
if there are journalists that are rooting against it, that's certainly their prerogative. I don't blame them. But by the same token, that's not the group of people that's going to ultimately decide about whether this is successful or not. Right. That This is going to be a straight market decision. Yeah. So, so, well, you have to go enlighten some young minds. So you should yes. go do that. Well, uh, uh, it's always a fun time here. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you'd like to catch us, folks, you may do so on iTunes. You can do so on Twitter at FlipsidePod or at Dr. GC or at BP Moritz, any of those works. We'll be back taking questions probably the next time we do one of these. Next week might be rough because there's a conference on the horizon for me, and it's Halloween next Tuesday. So oh, that's right. You, uh, you have any, any special Halloween plans? So we we are probably going to um, my daughter's best friend's house. They came up here last year to trick-or-treat, so we're probably going to go down there to do the trick-or-treating thing. My daughter's dressing up as Evie from The Descendants. Um, she's very, very excited at this. I have a Baymax costume I may or may not wear. Haven't decided yet. Uh, what is Eris going as? Uh, she is a llama. Good pick. Uh, she is a, a she's a full body llama suit. <laughs> we let her wear it when we got it just to see if it fit, and she insisted on wearing it the whole rest of the day, and insist tried to wear it to school to daycare the next day, but uh, we just settled for having her wear it again around the house. But um, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty adorable. That's awesome. Yes, and I I don't think do do llamas have shepherds. I don't think they do. No, they, they they have like the people who run the llama farm, but they right. don't have like I they don't they, they I don't know if they have an like they're you're not an alpaca farmer, so I don't know if you're a llama farmer. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know because I've been trying to think if there's a, a costume I could tie into that. But like if there's a if there's a solitary animal in the mindset of humanity, it might be the llama. Like might you be never the llama, right? You know, like the like the sheep is in a barnyard with other animals, but llamas are and just kind of there you know llamas are just kind of there and they're ju- they're completely judging you the whole time they're looking at you and so. might might spit at you it's just a, yeah. a possibility so all right well hey thanks to all you folks for listening brian thanks as always to you and um we'll catch you next week i think or in the week after or something like that we're in the we're in the crazy season but we'll we'll find a way to make it through thanks for listening folks we'll catch you on the flip side so long everybody <laughs>